everybody. Dr. Axe here. Welcome to the Dr. Axe Show. Today, I've got an awesome guest. It's Dr. Megan Rossi from the UK. She goes by the gut doctor and is considered one of the most influential gut specialists uh, in the entire world. And uh, she's a dietitian and a nutritionist. She spent the past uh, decade um, really working on helping people get healthy. She is a researcher at the King's College in London, England, where she specializes in gut health, prebiotics, probiotics, dietary fiber, and just helping transform the health of our microbiomes. And she has a new book out, which uh, she's going to tell you about here in just a little bit, but wanted to say, uh, welcome, Megan. Uh, well, welcome to, uh, to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Hey, no problem. So I know we're going to dig in and talk a lot about gut health today. So maybe we'll talk about everything from uh, leaky gut to uh, acid reflux to, you know, any type of gut issue. But before we dive in, and I'd, I'd really love to hear from you uh, how you got started in your field and, and really what drove you towards uh, doing your research and writing your book on, on gut and digestive health. Yeah, so I um, was raised in a farm in Australia, so I'm an Aussie girl, um, hence the accent. Um, so good gut health was certainly inherent in my upbringing. We, you know, lived off fresh fruit and vegetables. I played in the dirt um, and all that sort of stuff. But I guess my first conscious encounter with the gut was uh, just over a decade ago when I was in my final year of nutrition and dietetics and I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And I still to this day vividly remember hating her, uh, hating her, hating the gut so, so much for, for putting my grandma through the surgery, the chemo, and, and later losing her because she played a really big part in my upbringing. So it was really rough. And I guess, you know, it was quite clear that my first encounter or relationship of the gut initially was very, very negative. And then I went on, I somewhat suppressed those emotions and went on to work as a, a clinical dietitian in a hospital. And what I found is actually a lot of my patients were coming to me who had diseases in all different parts of their body complaining of gut issues. And I thought, what is it about this gut? Yes, I understood my grandma, she had the disease in her gut and therefore she was having symptoms. But why are these people with kidney disease and heart disease complaining of gut symptoms? And it was 2010 at the time, not a lot of research out there linking the gut with the health of our other organs. So I thought I owed it to my grandma and to all of my patients to try and get to the bottom of it and really try to understand whether if we target the gut through the right nutrition, um, specifically I used prebiotics, which is the food for the good bacteria, and probiotics, which is the good bacteria, and um, combining them together for a symbiotic effect, whether that can improve the health of things like our kidneys. And Fast forward um, the three years of the clinical trial, it was a successful trial. So we showed that giving people these symbiotic supplements, we could um, not only improve their gut health, but as a result, decrease some of these toxins circulating in their blood, which was linked with um, kidney disease. And, and my research team has gone on to con uh, continue that research and do a phase two study. But for me, I was also very fortunate during my PhD to be uh, a nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team and found that the girls that had the most performance anxiety also had the most number of gut issues. So it was quite clear to me that it wasn't just this kind of unique disease paradigm that I'd seen in the clinical setting, but also that was affecting, you know, really um, high performing athletes and, and every other person out there. 
So I thought at that point, you know, if I want to have an impact on people's health and happiness, it would be via the gut because unlike our genetics, we can't change them, but we can impact our gut health and, and in turn improve the health and happiness of other organs in our body. So I, after I finished my PhD, I looked around the world at who was doing the most innovative research and it was King's College um, in London i.e. focus more on, on nutrition aspect of, of the gut microbiome. Um, so I applied for a job, was very lucky enough to get it, and I continued to work there as a research fellow, um, like you suggested, doing a range of different diet-based interventions, all targeting the gut and looking how that can affect things, whether it's gut symptoms or things like our mental health um, and our overall well-being. Um, and, you know, I actually, you know, Josh, you do an amazing job at the public engagement side of things. And I never thought I would go down that path. I thought I was, you know, 100% a scientist. Um, but I found about a year into my post at King's that despite the amazing research that not only my group was doing, but groups all over the world um, in the space of gut health, it was you know, somewhat the sad and potentially dangerous messages that were being said to the public. And I guess the organ that I had grown to love and saw so much power and potential of uh, was, was being mis misrepresented. And I, I was seeing people, you know, in my clinical practice, because I continue to see, see patients that I feel like it keeps my research very grounded. I was seeing a lot of them come, you know, come to me on very, very restrictive diets because they thought um, that, that was the best way to treat their um, they got health and other people taking really, really high supplements were actually, that was having a negative impact on their gut microbiome as well. So I was seeing extremes in my clinic and I thought the only way I can, I guess, you know, help translate that is if I, I move more into public engagement. So I set up social media and um, yeah, the rest is history. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, I love I love it when uh, you have somebody who's as knowledgeable not as knowledgeable about yourself to where you've been able to really spend years in the research and working with people. And I love the background working with the Olympic swimmers with the uh, Australian team. Actually, in the past, I worked with some U.S. Olympic swimmers for the USA team, and oh, wow. uh, I know that uh, yeah, you learn so much from working with uh, working with patients, you know. And so yeah. I think uh, uh, there's so much value value there. So let's dive in and talk about a few things. I know one of the things you talk about in your book is you talk a little, little bit about things like low FODMAP diets and, and that type of thing. But what, um, you, you know, what, what are some of the biggest conditions that you deal with on a regular basis and some, some of the biggest, I guess, gut related issues you deal with in your book? Yeah, well, I think one of the, the big things that I, I start off with the book is actually helping people understand what gut health is because like you know it's such a hot trend everyone's heard of the word but what it is exactly isn't often translated so I, I talk about how our gut health actually relates to the functioning of our entire digestive tract so that nine meter tube that delivers food from entry all the way to exit and then I talk more about why gut health is important and the fact that you know if i narrowed the science down there's probably three main reasons one is you know the old saying josh that you um are what you eat that's not necessarily true it's more about what you are what you digest and if you don't have good gut health then you're not able to really extract all the nutrition out of what you're eating so if you want to make the most of what you're eating you need to have a good gut lining the second element is the fact that we have 70 percent of our immune system laying along that nine meter digestive tract so if you want things like the sick days again 
it's important to have good gut health. And then the third element, which forms a big part of the book, and that is around the fact that we all contain these millions of microbes, most of them are bacteria, but also things like um, fungi such as yeast, viruses, parasites, which, you know, historically we were told to fear and try kill, we actually see synergistically work to have a benefit. And we call this an acquired organ known as our gut microbiota, or the collective of the genes is called our gut microbiota. And it's this organ that we now see as being linked to the health and happiness of, you know, pretty much every other organ in the body. Um, so I think it is really important for people to realize that, um, that's, you know, gut symptoms is certainly something that I, you know, will talk about in the book. Um, and that is a sign maybe your gut health isn't, you know, overly healthy, but there's so many other signs out there. And I guess that the side of the book, I talk about these 10 um, different questions, a bit of an assessment to identify, I guess, how healthy someone's gut hit gut health is at the time. So I ask things like, you know, how often they're getting sick, how stressed are they, do they exercise, their diet diversity, etc. Um, so yeah, I just think people appreciating that just because they don't have gut symptoms doesn't necessarily mean that they have good gut health um, yeah, is well, a key. And, yeah, yeah, and so talk to me about this too. Obviously, one of the things that uh, I'm sure you cover in your book and you know, as well as I do, is that, you know, sometimes when people have a gut issue, they have gut symptoms. Sometimes it's constipation. Sometimes it's loose stool. Sometimes it's gas and bloating. But a lot of times people can have gut issues and it's not, uh, they don't have these digestive systems. Talk to me about how gut health can affect everything from our mental state to our, uh, you know, to, to our, um, you know, the health of other organ systems. Yeah, Josh, you're probably familiar with a, a recent study um, that came out. It was very much landmark in this space. Um, it was called the SMILES trial, and it was undertaken by some of my colleagues in Australia. And what they did is they took a group of people who had moderate to severe depression, the diagnosed depression, and they randomized them to either getting this gut-boosting diet, so super, super high in um, dietary fiber. In fact, the diet contains 50 grams of fiber a day. Uh, and, you know, in the UK, I'm sure similar to um, the US, we're having, you know, less than 20 grams of fiber a day. The guidelines say 30 grams. So this was 50 grams, so super, super high. And the important thing to know about dietary fiber is that human cells actually can't digest it. The sole purpose of dietary fiber, which is in all our plant-based foods, is to feed the bacteria in our gut. And I guess historically, when we didn't know about the bacteria, we didn't really understand why plant-based eating was so beneficial, but now we do because it actually nurtures these microbes in our gut. So they had either that um, high fiber, gut boosting diet, which was somewhat Mediterranean style eating, or they randomized them to this placebo befriending type of counseling. And it was really important they had that placebo group just to make sure any benefit in the diet group wasn't because they were seeing the dietitian over the um, course of the intervention, but actually because of food. So they either got the diet or the counseling, for 12 weeks and then they came back and they had a look at their mental health levels and they found those in the diet group 32 percent had a significant improvement in their depression scores which would have classified them as no longer clinically depressed in the placebo group that was only eight percent and i just find that stat mind-blowing that you know 12 weeks of changing their diet could actually change their you know diagnosed depression levels 
Yeah, well, that's incredible. You know, one of the things I, uh, you know, one of our colleagues, a person I love, Dr. David Perlmutter, talks about this a lot in his books, like Grain Brain and some others. It really talks about this gut-brain connection. It's amazing when you look at whether it's conditions like leaky gut and how proteins can then circulate through the bloodstream and affect the brain. But we know that so many people out there, in fact, when you look at the statistics on the top 10 selling medications in the US, the UK and Australia, their antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs are, uh, you know, are, are like four of the top 10 selling medications. And so obviously, anxiety, depression, mood disorders are a really big deal. Knowing that, uh, one of the things that um, you've talked about is fiber, the importance there. Well, what are some of the other keys, uh, maybe prebiotics, probiotics, anything else? Well, what are some things we really need to focus on in getting in our diets to start to um, repopulate uh, our gut microbiome? Yeah, just with, with that study, I think it is important to note that all of the patients did stay on their medications. Um, what I actually see in my clinical practice is actually over um, a period of time, alongside obviously uh, their physician, a lot of my patients are able to start to lower their antidepressants as they improve their diet. But I think it's important that if someone's on medications, not to go, okay, I'm just going to chuck that out the window because it can obviously disrupt their um, the different hormone regulation and it can be quite dangerous. But a slow gradual decrease with the support of their GP and um, nutritionist or dietitian, I think is, is key. There's also been some amazing research. They've um, recently published a meta-analysis, which is where they take all the individual clinical trials and they pool them together to have a look at what the overall body of evidence says. And they looked at different probiotics uh, and prebiotics uh, on um, depression and anxiety. And they found overall specific types of probiotics were able to improve both anxiety and depression. Now, the important thing, I think, when we talk about probiotics, so remember they're the good microbes, is that actually each different probiotic does different things. And in fact, we need to start moving to the paradigm of thinking of probiotics similar to, you know, even medications or vitamins, because there's, you know, thousands of different probiotics out there and they all do different things. So, you know, if you've got iron deficiency, you're not going to go and take a vitamin D supplement and think you're going to improve your iron deficiency. And the same with probiotics, you need to really find the specific type of probiotic, which we call the strain, take it at the right dose and for the right duration to see that benefit. Um, and Josh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there's an amazing um, website called usprobioticguide.com where they actually show which probiotics have actually been tested in a clinical trial. Uh, and shown which ones have that benefit and what dose people should take them at. And when it comes to the prebiotics, remember there are certain types of dietary fiber, there wasn't enough studies to show a significant benefit. But the thing with prebiotics is I actually very rarely recommend people take a supplement. In fact, you know, there's, if we think about plant-based sources, I think there's over 35,000 plant-based sources of prebiotics. So prebiotics are naturally found in all our plant-based foods. So getting in the diversity there is, is the best way for most people. I love that. That's a great recommendation. It's a great point because I think that, you know, one of the things that I think there's a lot of confusion about, uh, Megan, is, is which supplements are best for me? You know, and so I think some pro, I think some supplements are critical. I, I, I love probiotic supplements, but I'm in agreement with you. A prebiotic supplement is often not going to do much and unnecessary. I think we're much better off 
getting our prebiotics in the form of food, whether it be herbs and spices, vegetables, berries, you know, seeds, those types of things are really going to help, uh, help with that. And so anyways, I, I love, uh, I love you mentioning that. That's great. Yeah, no, it's so important. There's so many other things that come with those plant-based foods, like these polyphenols, which again, the cool thing about these polyphenols, which are, you know, the reason why people say having dark chocolate and red wine is good, is that 90% of polyphenols can't be digested by human cells. So they are malabsorbed in the small intestine, the higher part of the intestine, and make their way to the lower part of the intestine where the microbes then cement them and allow them to be absorbed and have their benefits. Um, so without those polyphenols, the bacteria probably wouldn't have that benefit from polyphenols. Wow. Yeah, I love it. Obviously, antioxidants do so much. Uh, you know, I, most of the time when people hear of antioxidants, the first thing we think of is anti-aging, which they help with anti-aging. But there's so many things you're mentioning from cancer, but especially gut health is a really big deal. Um, I love that. What are some of your favorite foods that people could start consuming right away that are that are high in polyphenols that are going to help the gut yeah so i actually have a page in the book on um polyphenols and i talk about the top um polyphenol foods according to this scientific analysis where they looked at the 100 richards uh the 100 richest sources of um polyphenols and things like surprisingly um when we talk about drinks Coffee, filtered coffee is actually really high in these polyphenols. Now, if you do have gut symptoms um, or you have levels of anxiety, sometimes having the caffeine in coffee can actually worsen and exacerbate your symptoms. So coffee certainly isn't for everyone. Um, but if you typically don't have any gut symptoms, having some coffee is actually really rich in these polyphenols. There's all the teas, a really high green tea, um, the cocoa, things like fruits, a lot of our berries, as you've mentioned, are really, really high in the, the different polyphenols. Um, when it comes to nuts and seeds, we've got flax seeds, chestnuts, hazelnuts are also really high. Um, olives, are another great one. Um, in fact, we actually can't eat olives unless they have been fermented because they're really quite bitter. What happens is when we um, manufacture them, we actually get the microbes in to help um, break down some of those bitter compounds. So olives are actually a fermented fruit. Um, other things like um, artichokes, um, chicory, red onion, extra virgin olive oil is also an amazing source of polyphenols not to mention all the um, herbs and spices out there. So getting amongst things like, you know, your cloves, your basil, your ginger, your caraway, et cetera. I love it. Those are great, great foods and great recommendations. <laughs> Let's talk about research for a little bit. You know, what's, you know, you know, one of the things I know that uh, I've, I've seen you quote is you mentioned that 15 years uh, goes into research to, clinical practice, or you mentioned it takes 15 years to go from research into what most people are practicing today, which, which I find so true. There are so many people in the medical space, doctors, who I see the current research. Like when I, I used to run a functional medicine clinic in Nashville here, and we would do uh, like micronutrient deficiency testing, and uh, we would do fatty acid testing, food sensitivities, all this stuff. And it's funny that and I started doing it because I started seeing the research immediately because I read the medical journals and I would, I would start running those tests. Unfortunately, some doctors still haven't caught up yet and they're not applying the research whatsoever. I'd say 80% of the doctors, well, what are your thoughts on that? That a lot of doctors have, are 
15 years or more behind a, a lot of the research that's coming out, especially in regards to nutrition, diet, and how that affects disease. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really tricky one. Um, and again, I think that's one of the main reasons why I moved more into public engagement to help um, with the translation piece. And there, you know, there is a reason why some of the research takes longer because there is that saying of do no harm. So we need to make sure we do test it quite um, robustly to make sure you know, we're not recommending things that can have that harm. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Can, can, can I ask you this, not to change subjects, but do no harm, is that is that what you would say our current medical system is set up to do no harm? <laughs> when you have side effects of every single medication, you have pharmaceutical companies that are able to do bias research and, uh, you know, put people on drugs that a few years later, oftentimes we found out has killed tens of thousands. Look, it's such a, a debate. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, starting on the animal models and being safe. And I think we do need to move away from from a lot of the medications that we are using as a easy quick fix. Um, so I know in the UK, a GP has 10 minutes with each patient and it's very, very hard to give any sort of lifestyle and dietary counselling in 10 minutes. So I think the way that the, um, the structure of a healthcare is certainly needs some, some help. And you were saying before about um, the discrepancy, I guess, with the translation of the evidence. And I see this quite a lot with irritable bowel syndrome. So IBS, where, you know, um, 10 years ago, we didn't know much about it. Now we know a lot about it and that actually the underlying mechanism is this dysfunction between the gut and the brain. And we've got many different types of therapies, not just diet related. And you mentioned the low format diet. Um, but we also know that things like some of those low format diets can be quite dangerous long-term for people's gut bacteria so it shouldn't just be recommended willy-nilly to everyone um and things like you know gut-directed yoga flow which i've got in the book and, and gut-directed hypnotherapy all that sort of stuff we now have clinical trials to show is quite beneficial for irritable bowel syndrome but unfortunately it hasn't been translated um to you know my medical professional colleagues um and that a lot of a lot of them don't really realize we have the therapies and often they just say to a patient look your test came back negative you have IBS unfortunately I can't help you or go google this diet well we actually know that's not quite the best um, care that we can give to people who have irritable bowel syndrome yeah yeah no it's crazy well and I would say the unfortunate truth is that's that's true for every single disease and every condition out there today mm -hmm. uh, you, you know I mean, I mean I again when I used to take care of patients who had uh, let's say IBS or heart disease or hypothyroidism or anything else it's looking at what's causing your heart disease why are your, your cholesterol levels a little higher than normal why is your blood pressure high there's inflammation in your arteries okay let's put you on a diet that reduces inflammation let's use some herbs that have been used for thousands of years and Ayurvedic medicine and Greek medicine and Chinese medicine, everything from hawthorn to turmeric to, uh, you know, to, to, to ginger and, and uh, getting more omegas, you know, all, the, all of these different things. And then really within a couple months, bam, heart disease is reversed. Cholesterol is completely normal. Body is healed. The unfortunate truth today is we have a medical system that is flawed. They're doing harm first. It's actually what they're doing. Every medication has a side effect, which really is uh, which, which really is a problem. You know, I think these things should be used in emergency situations if we need to get something down very quickly. And, and uh, but unfortunately, that's not the way the system is set up. Talk to me about the FODMAP diet. One of the things you have down here 
I know that you discuss in your book is low FODMAP. What specific condition is that for? And what is a low fat FODMAP diet? Yeah, so the low FODMAP diet, it's an acronym um, with the science names of all these types of uh, fermentable carbohydrates. And they're actually found in a lot of foods that we actually know are quite beneficial for us. Um, but what we find is people with irritable bowel syndrome, which as you know, Josh, affects, you know, over 10% of, of people, um, is these FODMAPs can trigger some of their symptoms. So what we know about irritable bowel syndrome is they have this dysfunction between the gut and the brain. So everyone's gut and brain is constantly communicating, whereas in irritable bowel syndrome, that communication is quite dysregulated so things which most people wouldn't get any gut symptoms for things like um, spicy food a bit of caffeine um, some fatty meals you know often a lot of people can tolerate them and they don't get things like bloating loose stools hard stools etc um, but when you've got irritable bowel syndrome those foods can change how your gut moves and the sensitivity of your gut. And what that does is, um, particularly with these FODMAPs, is the bacteria actually ferment them, which is a beneficial thing, but it releases a little bit of gas. And again, that's completely normal. But if you have that sensitive gut lining, it triggers up by your gut brain axis to tell your brain that you're in a bit of pain um, and that there's a lot of activity going on. So it can um, trigger your, your pain neurons. It can also... Uh, which is so fascinating, um, subconsciously cause your diaphragm to, con um, to push down, um, to contract, and your external gut muscles to actually relax. And it can result in that visible distension that a lot of people with IBS experience. And, and my colleagues at Nottingham have actually scanned people's guts who have that physical distension versus people who've eaten the same thing but don't have IBS. And, and actually, they have the same amount of gas in their gut. It's just... Those who have the IBS have that very sensitive gut lining. So any stretch from the gas inside the gut, from the bacteria, triggers up to the brain. Whereas people who don't have the IBS just deal with the gas naturally and they don't get that triggering of symptoms. Um, so what we find is that this low FODMAP diet actually takes a lot of those trigger foods out of the diet. But it's so, so important they're reintroduced because a lot of them are things like onions and garlic and artichoke, which we know are actually prebiotic. So they're good for gut bacteria. But it's just with IBS, you have that sensitivity. So it's about short term, four to six weeks, you take them out of, of your diet. Um, and then the second stage is around systematically reintroducing them um, to your tolerance threshold. And then the third stage is actually this personalization stage where um, you're certainly having a lot more FODMAPs than you were during the restricting phase. And, you know, the strict diet should only have been done, um, you know, with the support of a FODMAP trained uh, dietitian or nutritionist. But in my book, I've got this FODMAP light approach that I um, give to a lot of people who, you know, might not have that, you know, that ability to see a, a dietitian or nutritionist one-on-one -on -one, um, or who might just have, you know, little symptoms, not major symptoms. And what it does essentially is just takes out the higher ones, but also goes through that reintroduction phase um, and the um, personalization phase. And it, it just has less of a negative impact in the gut microbes. So, you know, if you follow a low format diet for too long, it can change your microbes for the worse. But one of the important things to allow people to reintroduce it is actually working on that gut-brain axis. It's so, so important because that, again, is that underlying kind of cause of the irritable bowel syndrome. So the FODMAPs are actually not the cause, they're just triggering it. So during the low FODMAP diet, I recommend people do things like gut-directed hypnotherapy. Um, 
directed yoga flow, which literally just takes 15 minutes every morning and really helps relax that gut-brain axis. And there's been clinical trials to show that now. Um, so I think, you know, pairing them together, you know, works on that gut-brain axis, but also gives people that short-term relief um, while having, you know, the ability to reintroduce and therefore nurturing their gut microbes again and hopefully getting out of that, you know, IBS vicious cycle people can get into with over-restricting their diet. Hey guys, Dr. Axe here. If you're someone who's looking to transform the health of your skin, your gut, and actually hit your weight loss goals, I'm so excited to share my new book with you. It's called The Collagen Diet. This book will teach you how collagen helps you maintain and transform every area of your body, especially your hormones, your skin, and your metabolism and gut health. Also, I have a 28-day plan to transform your health it comes with over 70 delicious recipes, a supplement guide, and goes into ancient remedies to heal. And hey, if you've already purchased the collagen diet, thanks for being on mission with me. And hey, please, and I'd appreciate it if you go on Amazon.com and leave your review. Thanks again. People often talk, talk about it with a condition called SIBO. Um, mm. Can you talk about SIBO a little bit? Yeah, so SIBO, again, another acronym. Scientists love acronyms, so it's small <laughs> intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And I'm actually coming to the U.S. Um, to talk at our big um, fancy conference uh, at Philadelphia on SIBO. Um, so essentially what SIBO is, is remember I spoke about that nine-meter digestive tract. So we've got the first part, which is our food pipe or our esophagus, then we have our stomach, then we have the third part is the small intestine. Now, it's such a crazy name because it's not small at all. It's about six meters long, so really, really long. Um, and then the final part is called our large intestine. Now, the large intestine is actually where majority of our microbes live. And our large intestine is very um, resilient to that. The large intestine can handle the things like the gas produced, the um, different beneficial acids that the microbes produce as well when they eat the fiber. So. The, the lining of the um, large intestine is very resilient to that, but sometimes, which is in the case of this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, the microbes actually crawl up a little bit higher and they enter into your small intestine, um, where the small intestine is a lot more sensitive. So if microbes, too many microbes get caught up in there, of course, we do have small amounts of microbes naturally in there all the time. Um, then when we eat food, the microbes then eat whatever we're, we're um, getting and they can actually eat more of it because it gets the digestion before I guess humans get to digest it um, and that can result in things like the loose stool, the bloating because you've got again got a very sensitive um, small intestine being inflamed. So with the um, SIBO what we you know it's a very early stage research but it does seem to be an overlap um, with irritable bowel syndrome and I think one of the tricky things with SIBO is it's quite hard to diagnose um, so I guess the gold standard historically was actually having an endoscopy so you get a, a tube down your stomach and you take a little sample to identify and measure the amount of bacteria in your small intestine to see whether it's too high. Now we often use breath tests but there are many limitations to that. Josh I'm not sure if you use breath tests at all. You know what? It's been years and, and I know it's done for SIBO, sometimes done for leaky gut and other issues, yeah. but I'm very familiar. Yeah, yeah. So with the, um, the breath test, so 
we typically do use them in clinical practice, but they're not, you know, 100% accurate. We also need to look at whether people get symptoms induced um, when people have these breath tests. And the breath tests are kind of like a provocative test. So we give people high doses of um, nutrients where we want to look whether the bacteria fermented rapidly or not. Um, and it comes out in the breath test. Um, so yeah, it, there seems to be quite an overlap with irritable bowel syndrome. So how I would treat it in clinical practice, there is the option for antibiotics. So rifaximin is thought to, um, and I very much dislike using antibiotics when you don't have to. Rifaximin is a type of antibiotic where it has a lot less of side effects compared to other antibiotics, but still I prefer if we can get, escape it not to use the antibiotics. Um, so what we typically do if a patient's happy enough to go down the diet route first, in which we would go, go through that same process of doing the low FMAP diet along with the gut-directed yoga flow. Um, some people also go in with some fiber supplements in there, but it is somewhat an individualized approach. And again, you know, in the book, I do talk about SIBO and individual symptoms. And I've got some good old flow diagrams that I guess helps people personalize the therapies according to their own individual situation. Um, because no one's got symptoms, you know, is caused by the exact same thing as someone else's. We need to identify and understand more about people's lifestyle and personalize it. And that's what I hope the book um, delivers. Great. Well, I, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because again, one of the things we know today that antibiotics are so overprescribed and what's that's doing to gut health. I know when I first opened up my clinic, the number of kids I saw that were being overprescribed antibiotics and then di and then developing digestive health. And then from there, we know if we wreck the gut lining, what that starts to do to the brain, to kids with ADHD, to kids on the autistic spectrum disorders, all of these things. And so as you're saying, this is so critical that we do everything we can to stay away from a lot of these antibiotics. And we do everything we can to build up our gut health. And I know you've recommended some great things here. You talked about uh, the probiotics, which are so critical. You talked about the prebiotic rich foods. Uh, you talked about the um, polyphenol rich foods, you know, these antioxidants that are critical to our gut health. Let me ask you this question. One of the things you've mentioned is yoga and some other things. What role does emotional stress play on our gut health? Yeah, it's huge. And I think this has come from our understanding that our gut and our brain are constantly communicating and it's bi-directional. So not only does our gut talk to our brain, but our brain talks to our gut. Um, so that's why things like the talking therapy, like gut-directed hypnotherapy, which just works on your head, actually can improve physical gut symptoms. So even if it's, you know, not, um, you know, massive stress that people, I guess, you know, consciously relate to, you know, most people who are living, living busy lives do have subconscious stress, which does negatively send messages to their gut you know, chronically. And over time, we think that can have a negative impact on our gut health. And you know, I think that's one of the big myths out there about gut health is that it's just about diet. It's certainly not just about diet. Stress is a huge, huge part to play in terms of people who have negative gut health. Other things like sleep, again, is so, so important for our gut health. And what we've seen actually is that our microbes, similar to our body cells, our microbes have their own circadian rhythm, so their own body clock. So if you have even two nights of disturbed sleep, that can change your gut microbes. Um, so again, in the book, I uh, have this 
uh, sleep hygiene protocol, which some of my colleagues from King's actually developed, and they ran a clinical trial and showed that it significantly improved people's sleep quality by following um, their sleep hygiene protocol versus just um, being told to, you know, improve your sleep. So it's about small practical steps that can have, yeah, huge and far-reaching benefits, um, yeah, throughout our body. I love it. Great points here. Um, you know, one of the other things I, I would love to, uh, I'd love to hear more about is what you personally do, Dr. Megan. So for you, what, what does your diet typically look like? You know, what, what do you eat for breakfast? What's a, either a lunch or dinner option, any snacks or desserts? What does your diet look like? So one of the things I really aim for is plant-based diet diversity. In fact, the research has shown that if you can get 30 different types of plant-based foods in your um, diet a week, you're actually going to have better gut health than someone who has less diversity. So yes, the dietary fiber is important, but getting that fiber from a diverse range of, of the plant-based food groups is helpful. And the reason we're understanding that is actually, you know, we talk about fiber, but there's close to 100 different types of fiber. And each different type of plant-based food contains different types along with different polyphenols. So um, I definitely aim for that really diverse range of plant-based foods. One of the other things I have um, every morning and I prepare overnight is my overnight fermented oats, um, where I add kefir uh, to my mix of things like carrots and a range of different nuts and seeds and oats. Um, and what happens is the kefir contains those live microbes and you put some in and then overnight while I'm sleeping, you know, millions of microbes are actually starting to ferment down my oats, my nuts, my seeds, my carrots, my cinnamon, um, my dates in there, and make such a flavoursome combination of, of um, nutrients. And also, they produce these organic acids, which we know are quite beneficial uh, for, for our gut health. Um, so I have that every morning. I'm very religious with it. Um, I guess my morning routine, I... Again, I'm quite religious at doing my gut-directed yoga flow. Even though I don't necessarily get gut symptoms, it does certainly help with my focus. Um, and, you know, the thing is, I am a scientist, um, so I didn't really believe that much in, in things like um, yoga and mindfulness until I actually saw the hard evidence. And now they've, you know, they've done the clinical trials, which have shown they can have huge impacts. And things like, you know, yoga can actually lower people's blood pressure and get them off blood pressure medications and things like that but it's about you know small gradual changes so yeah every morning i do my 15 minutes of gut directed yoga flow which involves uh, a 10 minutes of again doing mindfulness um you know really practicing those breathing exercises which helps relax that gut brain axis um yeah wow that's great how about supplements do you personally take any supplements I don't. I'm a big believer um, in getting, you know, if you are healthy, you can get your nutrition through your food, um, particularly when you are aiming for that diversity piece. You know, there are some situations when I personally would take a supplement. For example, if I was traveling abroad to a third world country or some developing country where I would be at high risk of getting traveler's diarrhea or, you know, a gut infection, I would certainly take a specific type of probiotic. And there's really strong evidence um, for taking these types um, when you are at risk of gut infections. And it's actually a type of yeast, interesting, Saccharomyces boulardii, and you would take that 5 billion um, units every day um, throughout your travels and for a, about a week after. And the same with actually antibiotics. There's really good evidence. If you do have to take antibiotics, to take that specific type of um, 
probiotics to reduce your risk of antibiotic associated diarrhea, which affects about 30% of people who do take an antibiotic. So there are certain scenarios I think you do need to, uh, but generally I, I try not to. Yeah, I, I was curious in thinking about that because you know one of the things too, if it sounds like a, a big part of your philosophy is make decisions based on research, um, which you know it's it's a way to live. Um, so I, I was just interested about that because obviously there are uh, you know th- th- there's a lot of things that the medical community decides to focus on and where the money goes in terms of the research. I guess the reason I'm asking is you know if you look at uh, you know, bone broth or collagen, for instance, is that something you have in your diet? Vitamin D, obviously, there's a crazy amount of research there. You live in the UK, there's obviously a lot less sun there than if you were, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, uh, certain areas of Australia or, uh, you know, or further south where you're going to get more sun in those areas of Europe. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on both collagen and uh, any even vitamin D supplementation? Yeah, look, I think in um, the UK, there is the government guidelines to take um, the vitamin D supplements throughout winter. Um, I have got my, my vitamin D levels tested um, through winter and I've been fine. What I, I typically do is get the, um, the mushrooms, uh, which kind of act like a skin, and I leave yeah. mushroom on the windowsill. And what that does is it absorbs some of the UV and actually produces, like our skin does, vitamin D. So I, I get some vitamin D um, through there. And, of course, I think it's important about you know assessing and getting a blood checked. And if you do need to take it, absolutely. Um, and, you know, for people who might not have access to get their blood tests, then, yeah, taking a small dose of vitamin D um, to prevent any deficiency, I 100% would agree with. Um, when it comes to collagen, I, again, don't think, um, for me, that's something that there is enough evidence to convince me to take. Um, I think, you know, having a, a very balanced diet, getting in a range of plant-based food groups, things like, you know, omega-3s, again, there is historically some evidence to take them to lower your risk of like heart disease, etc. But what we see is actually eating the omega-3s from fish sources is a better source um, and has more of an impact on lowering your risk of heart disease than if you take a supplement. So there is something about these whole food sources that seem to have a greater impact on health rather than relying on, on high dose supplements. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on the food on the food basis. And so, you know, for myself, anytime I am taking a supplement, it's actually a food. So, you know, my supplements are turmeric, uh, which, yeah, which, I, which I put on my food as well. I do medicinal mushrooms like reishi and lion's mane and others. And then I do actually a bone broth that's in powder form, which is essentially my collagen supplement. So that's the reason I'm asking. You know, one of the things I think, again, everybody's... Uh, I always like to know the basis for why somebody believes and eats and does what they do, because again, there's several ways. One is, uh, which it sounds like for you, it's relying on medical research, but there's also uh, obviously what some people decide to do is looking at, uh, you know, age old wisdom, whether it be, uh, you know, what did people do as part of Chinese medicine? Uh, what did people do as part of Ayurvedic medicine? What did, uh, you know, so again, that's, that, that's part of obviously, um, what they recommend and do in certain areas of Asia. Uh, again, med- medical science is one way of determining what to do, but there's also um, age-old practices and things that have been yeah. done for thousands of years. 
I, I completely agree with that. And actually, that's why I've gotten quite into fermented foods. Um, our, our group just published a, a paper, a review paper on fermented foods, looking at clinical evidence. And there certainly isn't much clinical evidence out there, but the fact is they taste delicious. Our ancestors have been having them for thousands of years and associating with the benefit. So it's like a no-brainer. Why not have them? Um, so, yeah, no, I definitely am in line with that philosophy. Great. Well, I know you have a new book out, which I'm excited to check out. It's called Eat Yourself Healthy. Uh, I know it, it's a great mix of science and, and stories and practical tips of helping people get their gut healthy. Uh, I imagine it's sold wherever books are sold throughout, uh, throughout the UK. Also, I'm sure people can find it online. Where, where, where's the best place for people to find your new book? Yeah, so there's also 50 different gut-loving recipes in there. Um, so at the moment, it's only out in UK and Australia. It just came out last week, actually, and I'm um, very excited that it's uh, still the number one um, book in nonfiction on Amazon and top five across all books on Amazon, which is amazing. Um, but I do believe in the next couple of months, uh, we will be hopefully moving to the US. So yeah, watch this space, US. Um, but you can, of course, buy the Kindle online but it's such a um i like to think of it as a bible for the gut so the the hardback and the paperback is a really fun one to have because you can take it with you and it, it's very colorful etc so if you can hold out um i certainly would try wait a couple of months tour in the u.s I love it. So, hey, I want to say, Dr. Megan, thanks so much for coming on today. Again, we had Dr. Megan Rossi here. And if you want to follow her on social media, you can check her out, uh, check her out at The Gut Health Doctor. That's at The Gut Health Doctor. Uh, you can find her there on Instagram. And also check out her website, The Gut Health Doctor, spelled full doctor, theguthealthdoctor.com. I want to say, Dr. Rossi, hey, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Same here. Thanks, everybody. Okay, so if you have a favorite part of this episode, make sure to go to my recent Instagram post and let me know what your favorite part of the show was on the Instagram post. Go there right now. Also, hey, don't forget to follow me. Uh, my handle, it's at Dr. Josh Axe on Instagram. I cover the latest health news in natural medicine, talk about everything from essential oils to herbs and spices, and how to naturally support your body in healing. Also, do me a big favor. If you loved this podcast, go to iTunes right now and leave a five-star rating. If you loved anything about this show, I so appreciate you being on mission with me to help transform the health of this world. I'll see you next week. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The products and ingredients discussed in this podcast are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you believe you may have a medical condition, please consult your doctor. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guests' qualifications or credibility. In some cases, individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein.